The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Let's get started. Good morning, Bereans. Appreciate you being here with us this morning. Um, Before we get started today, I'm going to talk to you for a few minutes about last week's message. Okay? Last week I mentioned that Isaiah 53.9 uses the intensive plural of deaths. And I talked about how adding a third person masculine gender, singular number, pronominal suffix, to the plural construct of movet gives us deaths in the plural. Sharon, stop laughing, okay? And Kaylin said to me, what did you say? <laughs> Listen, at times, I need to get technical to back up what I'm saying. Because I don't just want to say, well, Isaiah 53, 9, death is plural there. And you won't find that in the translation. So you're like, well, where did you get that from? So I, I want to I back up what I'm saying. All right. Now, this brings me to a letter that I received several months ago from one of our listeners named Joe. And Joe said that my constant plea for you to be Bereans and check up on what I say is impossible for most believers. And so I got to say, I took the letter very seriously. I sat down, I thought about it. It really caused me to reflect on this. And here's why this is important to me. I don't want to make any of you think or feel that you're less spiritual or somehow inadequate because you're not interested in diving deep and staying down long in the depth of the Scriptures. We are all different. Okay, every one of us. God made us that way. And you don't need to feel bad if you're not a deep studier. What is important is that you read your Bible. And the more familiar you are with the Bible, I think the better chance you're going to have to spot theological error. So read it. Spend time in it. You don't have to get into the Hebrew and the Greek. You can watch other people that do that, and you can learn by watching people. Now, after last week's message, I heard from two men um, who are studiers telling me, one saying, I really appreciate you bringing out deaths. I didn't realize that was plural there. And the other sharing with me a bunch of research that he did that came to the same conclusion I did, that it is plural there. So we do have those people who can hold me accountable, who can check up on me and find out if what I'm saying is really true, and that's great because we all need accountability, and I appreciate that. But to to the rest of you, the fact that you're listening to me tells me you're interested in what the Scriptures have to say. Because you could go somewhere else and get three points in a poem and feel really good about yourself, okay? So the fact that you're here tells me you want to learn a little bit more. Um, And I'm sure no matter how deep I go at times, you're getting something out of it. At least I hope you're getting something out of the majority of what I say. So this is important to me because I do not want to put you on a guilt trip. Unless it's about reading your Bible. Then I do want to put you on a guilt trip. Because everybody can do that. There's no excuse for that whatsoever. So, you know, you don't have to be a studier, but you have to be someone who spends time in the Word of God so you can learn and you can grow. All right, I just, I wanted to say that because I, ever since I got that letter, I've been thinking about it. All right, let's get into our text for today. 
We're continuing our study of 1 Thessalonians this morning. We finished last week with verse 18, so let's go back and look at 17 and 18. Paul says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Now, verse 17 and 18, Paul shares his deep desire to be with these people. He loved them. He loved them very much. Do you remember we talked about the Greek word for torn away from? Anybody remember what I said that Greek word means? It's a a porphanidzo, in case you forgot the word. But anybody remember what the word means? It means orphaned. And I think by using the term orphaned, he is saying this is an emotionally painful ordeal. I've been separated from you, and I don't want to be. Due to reasons beyond his control, he couldn't come back. He hadn't been able to get back there. And he tells them that Satan hindered him. Now, we looked last week at this in great length, and I shared with you the different views on Satan. And I shared my view that I think Satan, demons, unclean spirits, they're real beings. But they were all defeated and destroyed in AD 70 at the return of Christ, when judgment took place. Now, when Paul says hate, Satan hindered them, many people see Satan as, you know, translated adversary, and they say it's just people. I don't think, I don't have a doubt that he is talking about the Jews that were persecuting him. I think that's part of what he talked about. But behind those Jews were the spiritual power. So you have the earthly powers that are opposed, but you also have the spiritual powers that are promoting, encouraging those earthly powers. And I believe that Satan was the spiritual power, a real being, a divine being, a fallen watcher behind them, motivating them. All right, this morning we're going to be looking at the last two verses in this chapter. Paul says, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Yeshua at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Now here Paul's continuing to let the Thessalonians know that he deeply loved them and would really like to be with them if he could. He's responding to the fact that there are enemies in Thessalonica who are attacking his motives. They're stirring up these new converts saying, listen, if Paul really loved you, he wouldn't have left so soon. And if he really cared, he would have come back. He he would have come back to be with you. And Paul is assuring them here, that is not true. Now he says, what is our hope? Our reminds us that this is a team effort. It's Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They were there working together as a team. It's their hope. And that's what he says, it's our hope. When you see the word hope, one thing I want you to understand here, hope involves what has not taken place. Everybody on that? Agree on that? You don't hope for what you have. There are hundreds of thousands of Christians today hoping for what they already have. But that's not right. You don't hope for what you have. Okay, if you have it, you enjoy it. But they're they're looking and they're hoping for the second coming and they're missing the reality, all right? This text declares that the believers were themselves the hope of Paul and his companions. And their hope is focused on God's work in the life of the Thessalonians. Well, they were also the ministry team's joy. He says, for what is our hope or joy? And here, like John, who said he found no greater joy than to see his children walking in truth, Paul's saying, I get a great amount of joy from your spiritual lives. 
Because they were following the Lord. He says in the last verse, is it not you for... He says, you're our glory. You're our joy. He says that also in 3.9. But the, ori- the orientation of this verse is eschatological. Alright? Paul and his companions are going to have this joy at the coming of the Lord because of the Thessalonians' faith. He says, you're our crown of boasting. So Paul and his associates anticipate an eschatological time of boasting in the Thessalonians. At the time of the coming of the Lord, they'll receive the crown in which they will boast. Now, what he says here is very similar to what Paul says over in Philippians 4.1. He says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. So he tells the Philippians here, you're our joy and crown. Now, the word crown here, it's the Greek word stephanos. It was a wreath awarded to the victor in an athletic contest. Stephanos is used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.25. He says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable stephanos. But we, an imperishable. So, athletes receive a crown. But it's also used of a wreath which guests were crowned with when they sat at a banquet at some time of great joy. So Paul is saying that the Thessalonian Christians would be regarded as his reward. The proof of his labor had not been in vain in the Lord. He says, is it not you? The Thessalonian believers were a powerful witness to Paul and his team's effective ministry among the Gentiles. He says, you are our glory and our joy. You know, many of the New Testament writers talk about their glory and joy that they anticipate at the second coming. Peter says this in 1 Peter 4.13, But rejoice in as far as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. This is talking about, it's a reference to the second coming. When His glory is revealed, we're going to be rejoicing in that. Jude put it this way, Jude one twenty four. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Again, talking about when Christ comes, this is going to be a joyful time when he finds you in your maturity. Paul again tells the Philippians in 2.16, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul calls the second coming here the day of Christ. It is clear from all his letters that Paul expected Christ to return in his lifetime. He believed that Christ would return in his lifetime because Christ taught his disciples that he would return in their lifetime. Matthew 16, 27, and 28. Matthew 24, 34, and on and on. All right, and here's the connection here. This is going to happen at his coming. So again, we have a reference to the second coming of Christ. Now, commenting on this verse, Stephen Cole writes this. We learn here that Jesus is Lord, and He is coming again in bodily. He's coming again bodily to be with us. All right, let let me ask you something. Um, Do you see anything about bodily in this verse? This is what we learn from this verse. He says, "Yeshua at His coming," and somehow bodily's in there. Uh, maybe it's, no, it's really not even in the Greek. There's nothing about bodies here, all right? 
Here's the thing, people. No scripture explicitly teaches that Yeshua would return in a physical, bodily fashion. But there are many, many texts that tell us that His coming would be soon to His first century audience. So they come up with bodily, but they ignore the soon. An understanding of the language of Scripture will help us see that His coming was not to be physical. He was coming in judgment on Old Covenant Israel. The judgment was physical, but His presence was not. Now he says, at his coming, this is the timing of the event. This is what they're looking for. This is the time when their hope will be fulfilled. This is the time of their joy. This is the time of their boasting before the Lord. It's at his coming. Now coming here is the Greek word parousia. I know you could say that however you want, but that's how it's pronounced in the Greek. Parousia is what most people say. Parousia is the Greek. It literally means presence. And by metaphorical extension means coming. So to the, <coughs> excuse me, to the disciples, the parousia of the Son of Man signaled the full manifestation of His Messiahship. His glorious appearing in power as Lord. William Barclay says this of parousia. It is the regular word for the arrival of a governor into his province or for the coming of a king to his subjects. It regularly describes a coming in authority and power. And as Barclay says, it's used in secular literature of the first century for a royal visit from a king. It came to have a technical meaning in the church for the second coming. So this word parousia was used by the church of his second coming. This coming of Yeshua is is the theological focus of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Every chapter in 1st Thessalonians ends on this note. So we got three more chapters to talk about this, okay? <laughs> and we're gonna as it comes up, okay? Now, here's what I want you to see in this text. Most references to the second coming have a time indicator in them. All right, usually when the second coming's mentioned, it says soon, quickly, shortly. Some of you standing here, this generation, there's some kind of time indicator. But here he just mentions it, and there's no indication of time when this parousia will take place. But what we do know from chapter 1 is that Paul expected it in his lifetime. He tells us in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, and to wait for his son from heaven. Whom he raised from the dead, Yeshua, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, he tells us the Thessalonians of the first century were waiting for Yeshua to come from heaven. If the Lord still hasn't done that, what did it mean to them? Why would they be waiting for something they would never see that wasn't going to happen for thousands of years? That just doesn't make any sense at all. Would you wait for something you're never going to experience? The interesting thing here, wait, is from the Greek word anomeno. It's found only here in the New Testament, but it occurs four times in the Septuagint. Anomeno is from ana, which means upon, and Vine says it intensifies the meaning of mono, which is abide or remain. It conveys the meaning of expectant waiting, sustained, patient, trusting waiting. It pictures an eager looking forward to the coming of one whose arrival was anticipated at any moment. 
Now, when we did these verses in chapter 1, we talked about this word. Is, this is important. It's the only time this word is used, and it stresses there is an expectancy. BDAG, which is a lexicon, says to wait for, expect someone or something. You're not going to do that if it's not supposed to come. It's because they believed you would return in their lifetimes that they waited for it. Now, I think the fact that the first century believers in Thessalonica were waiting for the coming of Christ from heaven tells us they expected in their lifetime. Other verses in the letter imply that they expected this coming during their lifetime. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4.15. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord. So it's like some aren't going to be around, but the ones who are around... Coming here, parousia, and if you remember when we talked about the beginning here, we talked about, I said this letter was written probably 50-51 A.D., so the eminent coming of the Lord is about 19 to 20 years away for them. That's what they're waiting for. And during this time, 19 or 20 years, some of them are going to die. But he says, we who are alive, who are left, until the parousia. They expected to see it in their lifetime. 4.17 says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. Again, they expected it. 1 Thessalonians 5.4 But you are not in darkness, brothers, that that day should surprise you like a thief. Talking to Thessalonians, you're not in darkness. That's not going to surprise you. It's going to be in your lifetime. They looked for the second coming. They expected to see it. So, in our text, we don't have a time statement about this. But we know that they expected it. In their lifetime. And I think we can get a timeline of the parousia by looking at what the scripture says happens with the parousia. What is involved there? What all takes place when the Lord returns? Uh, is the earth supposed to melt and change and dissolve? And, you know, what does the Bible say happens when the Lord returns? Well, parousia is used 24 times in the New Testament, 16 of those 24. Or two out of every three is eschatological, referring to the second coming. So what happens at the parousia? Well, we know from our study in Matthew, we know from past studies, that judgment happens. Okay, I think we're all on track with that. At the parousia, judgment takes place. Look at Matthew 24, 1 through 3. You should know these verses by heart. All right, Yeshua left the temple. That's the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. They're there. They're at the temple. They leave the temple. They're going away And the disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. So you get the context here, the temple, right? This is not hard, okay, but so many people miss this. But he said to them, you see all these? All what? All these buildings, the temple buildings, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This whole thing's going to be destroyed. That would have been so shocking. To a first century Jew. This is a fortress. This is the house of their God. They can't imagine this. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your parousia and the end of the age? So again, here we see this word parousia refers to his coming to the end of the age to judgment. He connects it with the destruction of the Jewish temple, which was a judgment of God. Now, then later in this chapter, he tells us very specifically when 
the parousia will happen. Because Yeshua said, this generation, the one I'm in, the one I'm talking to, you people, the one we live in, not today, back then, this generation is going to see all these things take place. Meaning the generation he's speaking to. Now, here's what's interesting. G.K. Beale, who is not a preterist, but he says this in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians. The idea of judgment, while not explicit in 2.19, that's he's talking about 1 Thessalonians 2.19, the verse we're looking at, is implicit in the Greek word parousia, presence coming. The word is used outside the New Testament to refer to the coming visit or arrival of a king to a city whose visitations were revered and sometimes even feared. More to the point, Jesus' activity as judge is in view when Paul and other New Testament writers apply parousia to Christ's final coming. So he says, okay, this word itself speaks of judgment. And I think the Beal is right here. The idea of judgment is implicit in the Greek word parousia. The disciples connect the destruction of the temple with the coming of Christ. They said, tell us when will these things be, referring to the temple's destruction. And what will be the sign of your coming, your parousia? Now, the disciples knew the Tanakh. All right, They're familiar with their Bibles. They knew that the destruction of Jerusalem would usher in Messiah's kingdom. See, that's what we don't know. We read something like Matthew 24 and they go, how did they get this out of that? Because they knew the Scriptures and they knew that Jerusalem would be destroyed when the Lord returned. For example, they knew Zechariah 14, 1-5. That says, Behold, a day is coming for Yahweh, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken. All right, here we see the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And the houses plundered, the women raped. Half the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then Yahweh will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azale. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then Yahweh, my God, will come and all his holy ones. So here, they, the destruction of the city, the coming of the Lord, they connected these things. They knew that would happen. They are also familiar with Daniel 9, 26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The city, the sanctuary are destroyed by the people of the prince. Who's the prince? Prince is Yeshua. The people of the prince are Jews. They're the ones who caused this. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. The disciples believed that the coming of Messiah would be simultaneous with the destruction of the city and the temple. The temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, so we know when the parousia was. It was A.D. 70. We can put these things together and say, hey, that was going to happen. We got it. All right? Now we understand. Revelation 1.7 says, Behold, He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him. Even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. 
This is not talking about a televised coming of the Lord on all the network stations. That This is what I hear from people today. This is how they explain this. Everybody's going to see Him. Well, the passage speaks of Christ coming in judgment on Israel. Cloud comings in the Tanakh are frequently prophetic emblems of God's judgment on nations. We're familiar with that. We understand that. So the coming on the clouds is a coming judgment, not riding on a fluffy cloud, all right? The coming spoken of in Revelation is to be upon those who pierced him. Who is that? It's the Jewish nation. The New Testament continually points out that those who pierced Christ were first century Jews. Also, those who pierce Christ are the tribes of the earth, or land would be a better translation, which refers to the promised land or Israel. The book of Revelation introduces its readers to the theology of judgment, and specifically God's judgment sanctions against the nation Israel. Revelation has nothing to do with us, nothing to do with today. It was all about Israel. It was all about what happened to them in AD 70. Israel had crucified the Lord and they publicly called down God's judgment on themselves. His blood be on us and on our children. Oh, it will be. And it was. God's judgment on Israel matched their crime. Their crime was the crucifixion of the Son of God. The worst crime in history. So their punishment is also the worst in history. And that's why to call anything else a great tribulation is to downplay the immensity of that generation's crime. So the parousia in AD 70, judgment came upon Israel. They're connected. Judgment coming. We know the judgment happened. There's a specific date there. August of AD 70, city fell. Another thing that's happened at the parousia is the resurrection. That's connected with the parousia. When the Lord returns, there'll be a resurrection. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. There's your context. We're talking about resurrection, right? The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That means death, not taking naps. All right. For as by man came death, that's Adam, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his parousia, those who belong to Christ. So here Christ tells us that at the parousia, the resurrection is going to happen. All right? The word coming, parousia. When Christ returned, the dead were raised. Notice what Yeshua teaches. Matthew 13, 40 through 43. So it will be at the end of the age. Now, older translations have world here. Bad translation. We're not talking about the end of a world. We're talking about the end of an era, an end of an age. It's Ion here. It's not cosmos. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into a fiery furnace. This is not hell. This is the destruction of Jerusalem. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there was. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father, who has ears to hear, let him hear. At the end of the Jewish age, the Son of Man returns. He returns with His angels to judge the wicked and reward the righteous. Now, what we see here in verse 43 is that this happens at the resurrection. Do you see resurrection in verse 43? Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. You say, how do you get resurrection out of that? Well, you do that by uh, 
understanding this is a quotation from Daniel 12. So we go to Daniel 12. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people, Daniel's people, Israel. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation. This is what the Lord said in Matthew 24 about the great tribulation. And that's what he, Daniel's talking about the tribulation. The Lord's talking about the tribulation. But at that time, he says, your people, Jews, shall be delivered. Everyone whose name is not found written in the book of life, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. we got resurrection, right? Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now watch. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like stars in it. That's, he, that's a quotation right there from our text in Matthew. All right? The great tribulation is going to come. At that time, there will be a time of deliverance. We see the same idea in 2 Thessalonians about the deliverance at the time of judgment. God says, since, it is indeed, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. We've been talking about this since we started. The Thessalonians were under persecution. All right? And God says, I'm going to repay the people who are afflicting you. Okay, good. When are you going to do that? When the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. That's when you're going to get relief. People, think how stupid this is if the Lord's not coming for 2,000 years. It's beyond stupid. It's deceptive. Isn't it? Hey, look, I know you're suffering. I really feel bad. And don't worry, I'm going to give you relief. Just a couple thousand years. What? Do they care? Do they care anymore? No, their suffering is long gone, long over. No, he said, if it was to bring them any comfort, it had to happen when they were alive. He says, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Yeshua. So verse 2 of Daniel 12 tells us that at the time of the resurrection, the resurrected are either given everlasting life or everlasting contempt. Verse 3 of Daniel 12 is the verse quoted in Matthew 13. So at the coming of the Son of Man, there's a resurrection. Daniel talks about it. Matthew talks about it. All right? And it was to happen at AD 70. That's when it would manifest. We know when the parousia is. We know the parousia is in AD 70 because we know that that's when the temple was destroyed. So we also know that's when the resurrection was. And according to Paul, the resurrection was to happen soon. Look what he says in Acts 24, 14, and 15. But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection, both the just and the unjust. Now, you read that in English and you say, okay, it's going to be a resurrection, big deal. Someday, sometime, it's going to happen. But if you read it in the Greek, and if we look here at Young's literal translation, having hope towards God, which they themselves also wait for, that there is about to be a resurrection of the dead. Now, the words there will be in the ESV are the Greek word mellow. And whenever mellow in the present active indicative is combined with an infinitive, it is consistently translated about to be. So <clears throat> Paul here, <coughs> excuse me, He's telling his first century audience, there's about to be a resurrection. 
Now, if we're going to understand what Paul is saying here about the resurrection, we need to understand audience relevance, okay? Paul is not talking to us. But you read your Bible, and you're there, and you get to Acts 24, and you're reading it, and you say, there's about to be a resurrection. That's cool. It's going to happen soon. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. He's not talking to you. Well, who's he talking to? Well, actually, he's talking to Felix. He's talking to Ananias. He's talking to Tertullius. And he's talking to the elders of first century Israel. And he is telling them that there's about to be a resurrection. So the timing of the resurrection, from Paul's perspective, was soon. What does this tell us about the nature of the resurrection? We've talked about this often, but time defines nature. If the resurrection was soon, soon is past for us. It wasn't a physical resurrection because that didn't happen. So time defines nature. The resurrection was spiritual. All right? It was spiritual. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruit, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. So we see that the resurrection was to happen at the parousia. And we have seen the parousia was to happen soon in the first century. And so was the resurrection to happen soon. As Paul said, it was about to happen. Okay. So we've seen that even though there's no time indicator in our text, 1 Thessalonians 2.19, we know from many other scriptures that the parousia was to happen in the first century. And connected to the parousia was the judgment of the temple, which happened in AD 70. That's a historical fact. And we also know that the resurrection was connected to the parousia. So we know that happened in AD 70. So let me ask you this. What else is connected to the parousia in scripture? We always hear about the big three. Parousia. Resurrection, judgment. Those are all connected. And everybody understands that they connect those three. But what else in Scripture is connected to this time? It's this. Salvation. Eternal life was connected to the parousia. All right, now listen carefully what I want to say here. Don't, please don't misinterpret this. Salvation is tied to eschatology. Now, I am not saying if your eschatology is wrong, you're not saved. Okay? Well, then how are they tied? I'm saying historically, salvation was not complete until Christ's parousia. So historically, it is connected. In other words, how much salvation you currently think you have depends on your eschatological view, if your theology is correct. Because if you were to die right now, where do you go? Well, how you answer that would depend on your eschatology. Or should, right? You ask any Christian that, and they're going to tell you what? Go to heaven. Mm, no, that's not what the Bible says. What? Did the Lord return yet? No. Well, then guess what? You're not going to heaven. What? Try it. Ask a few people, okay? See, according to the Bible, no one goes to heaven prior to the second coming. So if it hasn't happened, nobody's in heaven. My daughter got in a debate with one of her Bible teachers once about this, and he was just kind of stretched him a little bit, saying, people don't go to heaven until the Lord returns. So if he hasn't returned, no one's in heaven. And he was like, oh, what is your daughter talking about? Look at Mark 10.30. 
who will not receive a hundredfold now, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come, eternal life. Now, pay attention to that. In the age to come, you get eternal life. So not in this age, but in, you get it in the age to come. Luke says the same thing. Who will not receive many times more in this time, the time we're living in, and in the age to come, the one that's future, eternal life. So what does Yeshua mean when he says they'll receive eternal life in the age to come? I would encourage you to go grab a few commentaries and look this up. It'll be funny. You'll get a good laugh out of it, okay? Sweet, in his commentary, says this. The age which is to follow the parousia. That's the age to come. So, is he saying that no one has eternal life until the second coming? It sure sounds like it, right? In the age to come, eternal life. And he says that age follows the parousia. He gets it. I don't know, I'd like to question him further on, okay, when do you think this is going to happen? Commenting on in the age to come, Weiss Word Studies says this, the authorities are silent on all this. Yes, they are, because it doesn't fit their eschatology. And the present writer (laughs) confesses that he is at a loss to suggest any interpretation. In other words, I'm not even going to try to tell you what this means, because it doesn't make sense to me. He says the best he can do is offer the usage of the Greek words in question. So he's going to break down the words for you, age to come, age and come, and he's going to try to just say what these words mean. But I'm not going to try to interpret this, okay? It is obvious that this phrase is troubling to many, and it should be. To understand what Yeshua is saying, we need to understand that all through the New Testament, we see two ages in contrast. We see this age, and we see a coming age. And do understanding of these two ages and when they change, listen to me, is fundamental to understanding Scripture. If you don't get this, you're going to be off. You're just going to be off. The New Testament writers lived in the age that they called this age. So you're reading the Bible and it says this age, and you think, the one I'm in? No. This age to them. Okay? To the New Testament writers, the age to come was future because it was to come, but it was very near because the age they lived in was about to end. All right, Charity, put me full screen, please. All right, when did the ages change? Here's, I think, how most people see this. They read the Bible and say, oh, we have this age, we have a coming age, right? We got two ages. And we got to one point here at the red line, and all of a sudden things change. So you step over the line, and now I'm in the age to come. But that's not how it happens. All right, It happens like this. All right, you got this age, and then you have Pentecost. And at Pentecost, you see the blue appears, and the blue continues to get larger, and the green, which is this age, continues to get smaller until you get to set AD 70. On the other side of AD 70, there's no more this age. It's gone. And this age extends all through the transition period. So in the transition period here, they can say this age. But you can't say that once AD 70 comes, you're on the other side, and there is no more of that at all. Okay, we're in the age to come. So since we're on this side of AD 70, the only age we live in is the coming age to them. Very important here. This age came to an end when the temple was destroyed, when Judaism was forever wiped out, never to come back again. 
So the New Testament writers lived in what the Bible calls this age. This age of the Bible is the age of the Old Covenant, and it was about to pass away. It should be clear to you that this age is not the Christian age in which we live. In the first century, the age of the Old Covenant was fading away. And you see it there, you know, it's fading. The closer you get to eighty seventy, the less you see of the green. It's just fading away, whereas the New Covenant is strengthening. All right, Charity, you can put me back to split screen. If eternal life was a condition of the age to come, then does that mean that the New Testament saints who lived in this age didn't have eternal life? Well, we could ask the question this way. When did believers receive eternal life? Remember, the transition period was called the already but not yet. So they had things already, but not yet complete because they haven't got to eighty seventy. Most Bible scholars and teachers say we're still living in the already but not yet. No, the transition period ended a long time ago. Okay, we're not in that period. We're in the oh, right now. We got it. <laughs> That's the period we're in. So we need to understand that prior to Yeshua's messianic work, nobody went to heaven. All right. When men died, they went to a holding place of the dead and they waited for the atoning work of Christ and the resurrection from the dead. They waited. In the Tanakh, the Hebrew word for where they waited was Sheol. Now, Jeff and I go back and forth on this. He sees sees Sheol as a place, a waiting place where souls went. I see Sheol as the grave. You're dead. You're in the dirt. You're done. Okay? There's some problems I have with my view. Okay? I'll admit that up front. But to me, it's stronger than the holding place where it's a bunch of souls. Souls floating around in this little container-like. I'm sorry. I'm misrepresenting. I'm misrepresenting his view. <laughs> you know, let me, let me tell you this. We're not far off at okay. You know, there's, there's some discrepancies on what this place was. But everything else is pretty much in agreement, okay? Yeah, Bob. <laughs> so the souls are dead. They're gone, okay? And they're not going to heaven. They're not there. So if Yeshua has not returned, which most of the church says he hasn't returned yet, then nobody yet has eternal life. Nobody yet is in the presence of God. The dead are dead, okay? They're just dead. Look again at 1 Thessalonians 4, 15-17. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now those are the dead. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are already dead, they go first. In the resurrection. But this is at the second coming. So if Christ hasn't come, guess where the dead are? They're dead. They're still dead. Okay? Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we be with So the dead go first, and then we go at the second coming. Now, if the dead have not yet been resurrection, have not been resurrected, which happens at the second coming, then no one's in heaven. But if you go to a Christian funeral, what do you hear? 
They're in heaven. I don't care how much of a scoundrel or unbeliever or what they were. I've never heard, well, this person finally getting their just reward in hell. They're burning. You know, I've never heard that at a funeral. Okay. They're in heaven. Everybody's in heaven. Or they're in a better place. Really? Okay. Whatever. But bottom line here, people, you only go to heaven after the second coming. So we do go to heaven. And see, so futurists are right when they say the believers are in heaven. They're right, but their theology's wrong because if they really believed their futurist theology, they couldn't say they were in heaven. So they end up the same place. They just are confused on how they're getting there. Heaven is not open until the second coming because salvation was not complete until the return of Christ. All right? Look at Hebrews 9.28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin. He did that at the first coming. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. He's going to save them at the second coming. This is the only place in the New Testament where the return of Christ is called the second coming. His appearing is for salvation. Peter states that their salvation was not yet complete. In 1 Peter 1.5 he says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So it's going to be revealed in the last time, but it hasn't yet. This would happen at the return of Christ. So if Christ is not returned, salvation is not complete, no one's gone to heaven. So therefore I say salvation is tied to eschatology historically. The second coming brought the fullness of salvation. Now, some today believe that your personal salvation depends upon a correct belief in eschatology. And they do this because they don't like preterists, and so they say, well, you're not saved if your eschatology is preterist. Okay? I mean, it's the craziest thing. You can't be saved, they basically, they're saying, without a correct eschatology. And people, that's just simply adding to the gospel. That's all it is. They don't like our view. They can't destroy our view from Scripture, so let's just attack us. Okay? They're not, they're not even saved. Don't even listen to them. Listen, we preterists have been labeled as non-Christians because of our eschatological view. But since when is eschatology part of the gospel? I just go to any reference in Scripture that teaches the gospel and see where it says, and have a correct eschatology, and you will be saved. And I think this is easily corrected by just looking at some of the gospel presentations. For example, Peter preached the gospel to Cornelius. Remember that? Cornelius comes, gets Peter, says, hey, we want... And he goes to Peter, Cornelius' house, and he's got his family there, and he preaches the gospel to him. Here's what happens. Acts 10.44. While Peter was still saying these things, he's preaching the gospel, and while he's doing it, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The Holy Spirit falling on them is salvation. To have the Spirit is to have life. Now, this is a little bit rude here because Peter hasn't given the invitation yet. And the Holy Spirit's saving him before Peter can even say, come down to the altar here, people. Give your heart to the Lord. Pray this prayer. Sign this card. The Lord just saved him. Okay, he's preaching the gospel and people are getting saved. All right? Now, notice how Peter sees this encounter. We're going to jump over to chapter 11. In chapter 11, we have Peter's account of what happened in chapter 10, all right? In chapter 10, we have Cornelius' account. Here we have Peter's account. And Peter furnished us with a very important detail of the angel's message to Cornelius 
which isn't, message, which isn't mentioned in the previous chapter. Peter says this, and he told us how he had seen, talking about Cornelius, he told us how he'd seen an angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who was called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. We don't have that in chapter 10. But he's saying, this is what he told Cornelius, go get Peter and Peter's going to give you a message and that message will save you. All right, faith comes by hearing, people. And this is the message of the gospel. You and your household. And as I begin to speak, he said, the Holy Spirit fell on them just on us at the beginning. So Peter's going to speak the words of the gospel by which you will be saved. Peter's going to declare to you the doctrine of salvation. And in this message, Peter lays out the gospel. And you don't see anything in this message, listen, about works. Peter never says, well, you've got to do this and that. He never says anything about repentance. He never says anything about eschatology. Let's look at briefly his message here. Acts 10, 39-43. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day. There you go. Okay, we have the resurrection fundamental to the gospel. And made him appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one who appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So if you go through this whole speech of Peter, Peter basically tells him that Yeshua is the peacemaker who reconciles us to Yeshua through the death and resurrection. God accepts Yeshua's sinless life and his substitutionary death on our behalf. And we are to believe that Yeshua can do for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. We have to believe that he overcame death and he can do the same for us. Faith is trusting in Yeshua and Him alone for our salvation. We must know Him in order to trust Him, and we can only know Him as He's revealed through the Word. So the Word is preached, and people trust Him. Eschatology, people, is not a part of the Gospel, and shame on those people who want to make it part of the Gospel. And, you know, I'd like to ask them, okay, you're saying eschatology is part of the Gospel. What eschatology? Is preterism the only one that excludes you from heaven? How about dispensationalism? Is that okay to believe in? And Zionism, is that okay? Or maybe it's pre-trib or mid-trib, post Which trib is it? Or maybe it's amillennialism. Or maybe it's post-millennialism. Oh, wait a minute. If it's post-millennialism, preterists can get in on that because technically we're post-millennial. Okay? <laughs> Where did Yeshua or any of the New Testament writers make correct belief in eschatology necessary for salvation. Just show me. And stop the blasphemy of saying people aren't saved because they don't do what you think they should do. It's ridiculous. Salvation was tied to the age to come, which Yeshua connected to the destruction of Jerusalem and to his parousia, which happened in AD 70. Okay. So our text talks about the parousia, but gives no time indicator as to exactly when it's going to happen. But we know that connected to the parousia is the judgment. 
And we know that happened in AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. We also know the parousia and the resurrection are connected. And we know that the resurrection was to happen at the end of the age, the Jewish age. And we know that happened in AD 70. We also know that salvation or eternal life was given at the parousia that was to happen at the end of the age. So we know that the parousia that Paul mentions in 2.19, even though he doesn't give us a time indicator, we know it happened in 1870. People, the scriptures are clear. The only question is whether you believe them. Or hang on to your tradition, hang on to your catechism, hang on to whatever. The creeds, the scriptures are clear. The only question is, do you believe them or not believe them? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and the opportunity to look at this text, Lord. I pray you'd give us a desire, Father, to search the Scripture, to know the Scripture, to spend time in the Scripture, that we would, when we hear things, we'd understand that this is correct or this is not correct. Father, I hope we've laid out a just cause here as to connecting the parousia in the first century with the resurrection, with the judgment, with the coming of eternal life. Thank you, Lord, for the clarity of your word. Help us to stand on it and defend it against those who just don't seem to believe what you said, what happened. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. All right. Questions? Comments? Gary? Well, that's, that's not talking about, that's apocalyptic language. He's not talking about a real split there. It's going to rip, you know, you got some 90-foot Yeshua standing on him with one foot on each side. No, that's, okay, it's metaphoric language. It's not meant to be taken literally there, all right? Where it says what? Well, that's true, yeah. but he was doing it, you he know. Was, he was the instrument. He was the person doing it. He was the responsible agent. He was the one involved in that, okay, stirring up the Jews to hate Christ, to be a hindrance, but again, he is behind this. Uh, Junior from Canada, what a great message, teacher, good job. I want to share this particular, well, yeah, that's Junior. I want to share this particular sermon with everyone I know. Well, thank you. Uh, okay, the, wait a minute. He sent a bunch of things. Do we have access to the conference speaker messages after it's done for those who are far away? I think we decided we're doing that, right? Yeah, we're not sure on that, but I think... I, yeah, I think yes. I think they'll be available. And you ask, will the church broadcast next Sunday? The plan is to broadcast... Uh, it depends on the internet over there and if we have the strength to do that, but we were de- we're definitely going to try to broadcast next Sunday morning, if only the morning. I'd like to broadcast the whole thing, but that, again, depends on the internet connection that we have and if we're able to do that. So thanks, Junior. I appreciate that. Okay, yeah, we have a lot of variables. It's been a few years and our equipment is all different. It's high def now, and so we don't know... We'll find out. Tune in next. Right. 
Okay, uh, John says, we've heard bits and pieces, but would love to hear your story. My story? Thank you so much for making the sacrifices that you have and standing for the truth. Your life has encouraged us uh, when we have also faced rejection, trials, and very little fellowship. Your life has been an example for us. God bless you. And Kathy, you have touched our lives deeply. Thanks, John. Jill, appreciate that. Um, yeah, my story, um, look, come down and see us, guys, okay? Come here, we'll have dinner together, we'll share with you, we'll talk about, you know, what the Lord's doing. Um, my story's simple, I heard about preterism and I believed it, <laughs> and that turned my world upside down, uh, but only for a little time, because then it got turned back right up and it's been awesome ever since. And I, I often share with this with people, I have not had fellowship in my Christian life the way I do since I've become a preterist. And I'm not really sure. I think part of that has to do with persecution because all preterists are persecuted by the church, so therefore we huddle together. Maybe. I don't know. That's, I think that's part of it. But it's just been, I don't know, you make acquaintances, you, make, you, know, you join with people, and it's just, it's just awesome. Um, I think this is from today. Good morning, Deb Darby from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Did the Israelites in the wilderness physically see the cloud and pillar of fire? Yeah, I believe they did. I believe they really did, because God told them, when that thing moves, you move. When it doesn't move, you don't move. Okay? It was very visible to them. It kept the Egyptians from getting to them. Okay? Because it stood in between them, and they couldn't get there. So, yeah, I think it was a visible representation of the Lord over the tabernacle. And so they had a clear understanding that God was leading them. And yet, and yet, they looked at, why have, they looked to Moses, why have you brought us out in this wilderness to die here? I'm like, what is wrong with you people? Short-term memory loss? I mean, you just come through the Red Sea, you see the pillar, you see the, you see all that? Ugh. Yeah, they look in. They they camped when it stopped. They moved when it moved. They said, "Oh, look at the pillars taking off. Pack up, let's go. We're following God." I, I don't know if this is a separate thing. It's a good morning. What about Matthew twenty three fifty three, saying that people witness resurrected old ta- saints as well as Yeshua? All right, that passage is something I've never really studied, so I don't know. I think Bob might be touching on or Bob, no. All the yeah. Okay. <laughs> Bob and Mike are going to answer all questions at the conference, okay? <laughs> so be ready for that. No, I'm not really... The, the graves were open and people came out. That was a short-term thing. I don't... You know, the text doesn't tell us anything more. Other people have answers on that. I don't. I've never studied it. And so I'm going to keep quiet. All right. Sean from Colorado Springs says, I have folks... They want to argue from a law of double reference, but I don't think they hold much water. But then you see America starting to go through the same tribulation period. Do you think when we reject Christ, a country, do you think when we reject Christ, a country, then we will reap the same as Israel did? No, because here's the significant thing about that. Israel was a covenant people of God. God had entered a covenant with them. They broke the covenant. God judged them, stopped it, 
went in, but he promised them, those same people that he made the covenant with, I'm going to give you a new covenant. You're not doing too well with this one. I'm going to give you a new covenant. All right, because God chose Adam. He created Adam. He made Adam man's representative. Man fell. So he created Israel and said, let's try this again. I'll give Israel my law. Israel messed up. Okay, none of this is going to work. i got to send my son to straighten this all out. Okay, but this whole law of double reference, I think it's just ridiculous. Okay, they, everything's double. Anything you say, okay, so then you say, all right, AD 70 was the Great Tribulation. Jerusalem fell, and they go, yeah, that was a, just a reference, but it's going to happen again. How do we know when the real one comes? How many, how many times you know, over and over does it happen? Again, I think AD 70 is so clear, you really have to have some kind of blinders on to not see it. God said, I'm done with Israel, and he was done. There is no more Israel. You say, oh yeah, they still say they're, they say they're Israel. Look up any encyclopedia. There's no physical Jew today, no racial Jew today. There's no record of your genealogy, without a record, you can't be a priest. Without a priest, you can't offer sacrifices. Without sacrifices, you can't have the temple. It's all done. The Lord made it very clear, you will never do this again. And since AD 70, they have never sacrificed. Here's the ridiculous part. They go through the seven feasts every year. They get the tabernacle or any of the, They don't offer 70 bulls. They don't offer anything. They've never sacrificed since 8070. Why? Because God said it's done and it's done. I don't care what people out there claim, there is no racial Jew. And it doesn't matter if there are, because God made it very clear that he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. That's not Judaism. It's of the heart. He redefined it. He says in Romans 9 6, they are not all Israel that are from Israel. What? You got two Israels? Yes. You got tribal Israel, national Israel. You got true Israel. Who's true Israel? It's Yeshua and anyone who trusts in him. People, we're, the Abrahamic covenant was made to Abraham and his seed, Galatians 3, which was Christ. And so all who believe in Christ are seed of Abraham, children of promise, part of the new Israel of God. I don't think it's complicated, but that's just me. So I hope that answers your question, Sean. Appreciate the question. Oh, I'm sorry, John. I did, yeah, thank you. Um, John says, uh, you missed the first part of the message that he sent me. I guess I did. He says, this morning during the scripture reading, my young daughter said, it would be so nice if Pastor David would give us his full testimony sometime. Oh, well, thank you. Um, Okay, I'll put that on the agenda to do that someday. All right? Thanks, John, for bringing that to my attention. Great material today. These answers are what verified preterism is the answer to me. Can't find a hole in this eschatology yet. I can't either. And I tried. I cried out to God and I tried. Because when I saw it, I didn't like it. Why? I'm not trying to be weird. I'm not trying to be different than everybody else. And so I realized this is costly. So the first year of my preterism, I researched everything I could find against it. Every time a new article would pop up, this is why preterism is wrong. I'd be so excited. I'd, man, pull the article up. I'm going to find this. I'm going I'm to go back to orthodoxy. I wanted to go back. I'd like to be orthodox. It just doesn't fit too well with the Bible. <laughs> and I'd pull up this article and it goes, 
Well, obviously, preterism is true because the stars and the moon and the sky are still up there. I'd be like, whoa, you got me now. And I'd be like, this is the best of their arguments. So I put something, or I had, I can't put anything on a website, but I had, some, I had put on the website how to refute preterism with the Scripture. Do you remember that? And when you click on it, the theme from Mission Impossible would play. <laughs> I was trying, I mean, I just, that's how I feel, people. You want to, you want to disprove this with the Scripture? You're out, you're in a, a possible mission, because we're standing with the Scripture. The time statements are clear, okay? And you can hope for something in the future all you want. And I think you're wrong. I just, you know, that's just how it is.